I'm Sandy Burnett, and today we're going to take a close look at one of the definitive works of the Romantic era, the Symphonie Fantastique, or Fantastic Symphony, by Hector Berlioz. He was a French composer born just north of Grenoble in 1803, who enjoyed a long life in which he excelled not only as a composer, but as a conductor as well, and thirdly, as an eloquent critic and writer on music, at a time where the whole art form was undergoing radical change, dying eventually in Paris in 1869. And yet, when I think of Berlioz, I think of him as a young man, restlessly energetic, extremely passionate, and prone to the most dramatic excesses of emotion, because that's the description he gives of himself in the work we're focusing on this week, a work he wrote in his late 20s, which brilliantly uses the conventional form of the symphony, with its several movements and contrasting speeds and styles, to tell a story a nightmarish vision of how a young man sees his beloved appearing in a number of different dramatic situations. How Berlioz made that vision come to life on an orchestral canvas and the background to it all coming together is the focus of this week's programme as we explore how one man's frustrated passion gave rise to an amazing piece of musical semi-autobiography. Growing up in provincial France in the shadow of the Alps, Berlioz read extensively, taught himself music theory from treatises, and composed songs and other small pieces, but the range of musical material he was surrounded with was severely limited. He didn't even see a full score of a piece of music in all his time there, and probably heard nothing more sophisticated than string quartets by Pleyel, which were fashionable at the time, but undemanding. Berlioz badly needed the musical exposure that a big city could offer. But when he moved to Paris at the age of 17, it was to study not music but medicine, the idea being that he should follow in the footsteps of his father. But that was never going to work. Berlioz just wasn't suited to, as he put it in his memoirs, taking part in horrible operations instead of giving myself body and soul to music, sublime art whose grandeur I was beginning to perceive. Being a doctor's son and rather squeamish myself, I know exactly where he's coming from. Now that he was in the French capital, he was able to soak up some of the great performances on offer. Within a month of arriving in Paris, he started going to the Opéra to hear works by all of the latest stage composers, but Christophe Villebant Gluck in particular. Berlioz's obsession with Gluck was so strong that he used to sneak into the Conservatoire library, even though he wasn't yet a student there himself, to copy out as much of Gluck's music as he could, teaching himself about musical technique in the process. He abandoned his medical studies for good in 1824 and committed himself to music. It caused serious ructions at home and led to some five years of real financial hardship. But for Berlioz, it was a sacrifice well worth making. 
The entertainment on offer in Paris wasn't purely musical. There was plenty of theatre as well, even performances of Shakespeare, whose plays the French weren't familiar with at all. An English theatre troupe had come over in 1822 to perform Shakespeare in English, but given that the Napoleonic Wars had ended just seven years before, maybe the venture was ahead of its time. Their first-night performance of Othello was interrupted by members of the audience throwing fruit at the actors and shouting, Parlez Francais! Eventually the police had to intervene. Things went much better five years later, when a distinguished English company came over to give a Shakespeare season at the Odeon. This company included three of the greatest actors of the day, Charles Kemble, Edmund Keane and William McCready. And joining the company was a young Irish actress from Ennis, County Clare, by the name of Harriet Smithson. She was the daughter of a theatre manager who began her acting career first in Dublin at the age of 14 and then at Drury Lane in London. It was when she travelled over to Paris with the company that things really took off for her. Harriet Smithson captured the hearts and imagination of the audience there and her appearance had a lot to do with it. Charles Kemble's daughter said she had the figure and face of Hibernian beauty. These vibrant Shakespeare plays were quite different from the formal classical theatre repertoire normally on offer for the Parisians, and the artistic community flocked to see the visiting company in action. The playwrights Victor Hugo and Alexandre Dumas, for example, and the artist Eugène Delacroix. But no one was more affected by the impact of the performances than Hector Berlioz. Remembering his visit to the Odeon to see Hamlet with Kemble in the title role and Smithson playing Ophelia, he wrote, he found the combination of actress and playwright irresistible. The impression made on my heart and mind by her extraordinary talent, nay her dramatic genius, was equalled only by the havoc wrought in me by the poet she so nobly represented. Berlioz went on to write several scores based on Shakespeare plays in the coming years, while he became completely obsessed with Harriet Smithson. Over the next two years, he kept pursuing her, waiting for her to return to Paris and trying to think of excuses to get near her. And it was only once his passion had cooled and he could see the obsession in the cold light of day that Berlioz encapsulated something of the experience in his work, summing up her unattainable essence in one key musical theme. Away from the theatre, another significant discovery from Berlioz in Paris in the 1820s was the orchestral music of Beethoven. Not a composer they praised to the skies at the Paris Conservatoire, where vocal music by French composers was much more what they believed in. But Beethoven did have one persuasive advocate in the shape of the violinist-turned-conductor François-Antoine Abnec, who gave the French premieres of many Beethoven symphonies with his Société des Concerts Orchestra. Berlioz heard them play Beethoven's third and fifth symphonies in the same concert one March day in 1828, and was thunderstruck, saying, Beethoven opened before me a new world of music, as Shakespeare had revealed a new universe of poetry. The experience made Berlioz change direction from working on operatic and vocal music to writing for a symphonic lineup. 
With the example of his Nine Symphonies, written between 1800 and 1824, Beethoven had shown how the scope of the symphony could be expanded, developing musical arguments over a longer period of time and employing more instruments in the orchestra, such as piccolo and trombones. But more significant than that was what Beethoven was saying with his music. For him, the symphony was a dramatic tool which could suggest scenes and emotions, as in the case of his Pastoral Symphony No. 6, or even outline philosophical concepts, as in the Choral Symphony No. 9 with its rousing choral finale. And it wasn't so much the sound world of Beethoven as the way he used the symphony to dramatic ends that really struck a chord with the young Berlioz. So in this Symphonie Fantastique, which, as its preface explains, describes a tortured artist very like Berlioz himself, and his unrequited love for a woman very like his frustrated passion for Harriet Smithson, we find drama and symphony completely intertwined. Or maybe a kind of opera without the words. That's what Berlioz says in the preface to his score, published in 1845. It reads, The composer's intention has been to develop various episodes in the life of an artist, insofar as they lend themselves to musical treatment. As the work cannot rely on the assistance of speech, the plan of the instrumental drama needs to be set out in advance. The following programme must therefore be considered as the spoken text of an opera, which serves to introduce musical movements and to motivate the character and expression. This programme should be distributed to the audience at concerts where this symphony is included, as it is indispensable for a complete understanding of the dramatic plan of the work. Even today, an edited version of that programme stands at the head of every published version of the Symphonie Fantastique. It's an important example in classical music of what's called programme music, music that tells a story. The programme, or storyline, isn't an optional extra. As Berlioz says there, it's essential to have it to understand what's going on in the music. It explains a pretty full-on dramatic scenario, how a sensitive young artist has poisoned himself with opium in a fit of lovesick despair and proceeds to experience visions of his beloved appearing in a number of different dramatic situations, at a ball, in the countryside, and so on. And at each appearance, the shape of her theme is adapted to reflect the context. This is a procedure known in classical music as thematic transformation, a key device of the Romantic era. In 1822, Franz Schubert had based an entire piano fantasy on various transformations of his song The Wanderer, and later in the century, Franz Liszt and Richard Wagner were to use the idea of transforming themes for dramatic purposes, becoming the famous leitmotif in Wagner's hands. For now, though, Berlioz thought of the main theme as a fixed idea, or idée fixe. Incidentally, that phrase was first used the previous decade as a medical term referring to a kind of neurosis or monomania, which in Berlioz's case at this time wasn't so wide of the mark. I've played the beloved's Idée Fixe theme as it first appears. This is how Berlioz first transforms it. In the second movement, a waltz, set in the dramatic context of a ball, with the orchestra enriched with a cornet and sparkling harp. As the programme puts it, in a ballroom, amidst the confusion of a brilliant festival, he finds the loved one again. After the scene is set, violins introduce the main ball theme, then there's a change in texture and the beloved theme appears in a remote key 
before Berlioz brings both themes together in counterpoint to, as it were, dance with each other. It's worth considering the performers here. In bringing the different moods of this symphony to life, they need to taper their sound to the circumstances of each movement with dramatic awareness, just like any member of Harriet Smithson's theatre company. The violin sound in particular is impressively gossamer thin, to reflect the almost Jane Austen context of that scene. But things become a lot more loud and brash later on, as we're about to hear. As we heard earlier, the reason for these outlandish visions and the beloved being seen in such a range of dramatic situations is that the lovelorn young musician in the programme has taken a hefty dose of opium, though not quite enough to kill him. So given that this symphony was written in 1830, how common was opium use at this time? In an interesting piece of research, Mike Jay reveals that Berlioz's father was a regular opium user, and that laudanum, a little opium dissolved in alcohol, was amongst one of the most widely used medicines of the time. What we'd now call the recreational use of opium was the subject of one of the best sellers of the time, Thomas de Quincey's Confessions of an English Opium Eater of 1821, which first appeared in a French translation in 1828. It's pretty clear that Berlioz was a regular opium user, just like his semi-fictional alter ego of the Symphonie Fantastique. It's in the final part of the work, movements four and five, that the drama really grows in intensity. And it's at this point that we can trace another important influence at work here, Goethe's dramatic poem Faust, which was taking Europe by storm, and which Berlioz just couldn't put down. Berlioz said he read it incessantly, at meals, in the theatre, in the street. At the end of part one, Goethe's heroine Gretchen has been condemned to death. And something of that vivid scene is reflected in the Symphonie Fantastique's fourth movement, the March to the Scaffold. But in this case, it's the artist who's ready for the chop, with just one faint recollection of the beloved's theme before the guillotine falls.
That chilling march to the scaffold is topped, if that's possible, by the dream of a witch's Sabbath, a terrifying finale to the Symphonie Fantastique that depicts a witch's Sabbath at midnight, with all sorts of ghoulish creatures coming together to dance to a grotesque parody of the Dies Irae plain chant, Berlioz's beloved amongst them. In the words of the programme, the beloved melody is heard again, but has its noble and shy character no longer. It has become vulgar, trivial and grotesque. Quite apart from the drama, it's in the finale that you can hear how brilliant an orchestrator Berlioz was. In bringing this nightmare vision to life, he treats the instruments of the orchestra in all sorts of unconventional and imaginative ways. From the high piccolo, which he asks to slide down from a high C in a most eerie fashion, the shrieking of the E-flat clarinet, violins and violas being asked to hit the strings with their bows, deep bells ringing out, and going right down to the bass drum, which Berlioz asked to be rolled onto its side and played by two percussionists using sponge-headed beaters. As this last movement heats up, the brass and strings sound as though they really are going crazy, and as the instruments rush towards a blazing chord, it sounds as though all hell is breaking loose. Remember, this is the work of a man in his late twenties. He was to live for almost forty more years, writing three more innovative symphonies, four more operas and massive choral works, but he never managed to surpass the sheer energy and brilliance of the Symphonie Fantastique of 1830. And for me, Berlioz's music just doesn't get any better than this. You're listening to RTE Lyric Live 